0: Hello, and happy Valentine's Day, Ryerson. It's Friday, February 14th, and this is Blue and Gold. For the Ryersonian, I'm your host, Dan Drigo.
1: And I'm your host, Latoya Powell.
0: Despite the university cutting ties with the RSU, a democratic election is currently underway. The names of the candidates were announced on February 6th, a little less than a week before the election period opened on February 12th. This year, Inspire and Rise are the two slates in the running. Each consists of 38 students total. Today, you will hear from presidential candidates Charmaine Reed and Ali Youssef during their campaigning period.
1: I want to be president. I want to be the leader of this organization. We're going to make sure We actually listen to the students, and we actually do what their stance is on in terms of everything, whatever the issue
0: is. Remember, today is the last day to get out and vote.
1: Black History Month is a time to celebrate the accomplishments of Black people in both past and present. This month on Blue and Gold, we'll be profiling some of the Black leaders on campus who have made a difference. Today... We will be joined by Crystal Hines, who is a fifth-year social work student.
0: The RSU election is now underway following a week's worth of campaigning and a semester's worth of turmoil. But with voting set to close tonight, what do we know about these candidates and their campaigns? Sharina Harris is a Ryersonian education reporter who has been covering the RSU since last year, and she joins us again today to recap the last week of Ryerson University politics. Thanks for coming in, Sharina.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Just same old as usual. Can you take me through what's happened this last week in terms of university politics here now? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So what I think is really significant that we're seeing right now is that both Ryerson and the RSU are pushing forward with each holding an election. Obviously, uh, both elections look very different. So right now, Ryerson is in the process of holding town halls where students can ask questions about the uh, election for a new student government structure. That election is going to take place in March. And then whoever wins that has to commit to holding general elections in April. So Ryerson's really moving forward with creating a new student government here at Ryerson since they don't think that the RSU represents students anymore. Now, at the same time, the RSU is also moving forward with their election – as usual, a little bit different. Uh, they don't have access to a lot of online information that they usually do, so they're having to do everything on paper ballots, just in the student campus center. But last night we had the debate hosted by the Eye Opener with six of the candidates who are running for executive positions. This year it's also a little bit different because there are only two slates. Typically there are a few more. I think last year there were three or four, so uh, less people. One executive. Position was removed at the semi annual general meeting this year. So just 10 people running um, for executive positions on two slates, as well as their directors. And um, something that came out of the debate last night was that both of these teams running for the exec positions want to go back to the negotiating table with Ryerson University. They both kind of have different ways to do this. The RISE slate wants to have a survey to ask Ryerson students who they want to represent them and what they want that to look like, and then they say that that survey will inform how they move forward. The INSPIRE candidates had some questions about why they would do a survey and just said that they'd also like to go back to the negotiating table with Ryerson. I think it's worth noting that As we sat in that room and the candidates were both saying, like, yeah, you know, we think we can go back to the table with Ryerson. Ryerson so far has not given an indication that that's something that they're willing to do. They are, as I said, pushing forward with this election. And I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens next.
0: Short but sweet. Thanks again, Sharina.
2: No problem. Thanks for having me.
0: Now to hear from the candidates themselves. We were able to talk to both students currently running for the position of RSU president. Leading the RISE slate, we have Ali Youssef. I feel like at this point of time, with the current situation, the RSU is in. Uh, The students need clarity, students need answer, and the RSU needs some sort of experience. As VP of Operations in 2018, Ali said that he left the RSU with a surplus of $250,000 at the end of his tenure. I was a VP of Operations of RSU two years ago. I was an international rep a year before that, and... Proud to say that I'm the only VP operations in last six years actually who's had a good financial year. Um, We had set in stone financial policies which made us successful in that, and proud to say that there was nothing, there was no financial scandal, embezzlement or nothing like that in our year. Spearheading the Inspire slate is Charmaine Reed.
1: President was a a big decision. It felt like um, I needed to take one step up from what I did last year and uh, double down on the the efforts that we needed, and that involved running for president instead of just a vice president uh, position.
0: Reed ran for VP of Operations in 2019, but has since returned with a renewed goal of rebranding the RSU during her first month as president.
1: If I was in the position of president, I would spend the next few months ensuring that students are aware of the services that the RSU provides. I find that the issue is really a marketing issue. These services are needed and these services are being utilized, just not on a scale that would be representative of Ryerson's students.
0: Yusuf and Reed are joined by 36 other candidates from their two slates, vying for 25 positions within the union.
1: Heinz is a fifth-year social work student at Ryerson. She's advocated for student rights as one of the leaders of We Are the Students Ryerson, a student-led campaign that protests against Doug Ford's university cuts, and she has also won multiple awards for her engagement on campus and passion for social work. She is known for being a powerhouse student leader at Ryerson and within the greater community. Welcome to the show, Crystal. Hello. Thank you for having
3: me, LaToya.
1: (laughs) How would you describe your leadership here at Ryerson?
3: Oh my goodness, as ever evolving. (laughs) You know, student leadership is really about, you know, hosting events, activities, initiatives, and and fostering like an existing kind of climate and environment, whereas like student organizing is really that resistance work, that social justice advocacy, that pushing back against like, you know, very convoluted and oppressive structures that harm students. In my case, it was a lot of Black and Indigenous students at the time. And so that was a really interesting transition. And then fourth year, really where the heart of my my advocacy and activism really evolved and, and came forth. Again, introduced to We Are The Students, um, was one of the core organizers for that. And then simultaneously also exposed to different other movements on campus that I participated in, and that stimulated my advocacy.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. So going back to that balancing between student organizing and student leadership here on campus, what was one of the first groups or movements that you were a part of?
3: um definitely in that in terms of that one that i was like a core organizer for a really really a part of as a student ad- activist or advocate um, was definitely we are the students. That is where I was exposed to what it looks like to really, you know, not just issue diagnose, but really like develop a strategy around pushing back against these governmental structures. At that point, you know, I would say the starting of student activism and student organizing for me was really do a lot of self-reflection and asking myself, what do these spaces mean to me? What do these spaces mean to my community? And how have I come to really, not just appreciate the, the benefits that come with these spaces, but also the consequence. Mm-hmm. And what were some of the answers that you came to? Oh, my gosh, so many. <laughs> um, uh, some of the answers, you know, and just being super raw about it, was like having to confront the fact that, you know, dealing with having to unpack what it means to be uh, a black cisgendered heterosexual female in organizing in these spaces, and benefiting from, like I said, the uh, you know you get you get picked for these events and this that whatever, but also the fact that like sometimes you are used to be like that tokenized good black student who is digestible and who is accessible, and therefore you're always called on to do these incredible things. And again, that's not a bad thing when it comes down to you know representative justice sometimes, but sometimes it is because there were times when I had to ask myself, Crystal, like yes you're doing this incredible student leadership work you're getting all these awards and accolades and whatever but the, here is a whole other side of, of campus in a, with black students who are not ex- the same benefits that you have as being a black woman in leadership um, and really just unpacking disrupting like how am I taking how am I how am I allocating the same amount of energy that I'm putting in to host these events and these social justice events that to, to pour back into Black students at campus and make sure that they are also getting the justice that is needed, even if it means disrupting some of the relationships I have had to develop with these institutions as a result of the in- environment that I'm in, and then having to, you know, unpack what inter-community violence looks like on my end. I have been called in by community members, a part of the Black community at Ryerson, and had to have, like, these critical conversations and these difficult conversations conversations and be like wow and that's the thing about student organizing especially when you're a black person it's like you don't think you can be called out because you're like I'm black I know what it's like I'm doing the work I'm this and that but it's like no are you prepared to like be held accountable to the fact that yeah maybe you went into this with really amazing intentions but maybe it's it's not yielding as much good as you think when it comes to your community and that's not to say like I was a terrible like violent whatever kind of person but it is to account for the fact that I did inflict some trespass I did miss some things along beside my leadership and it was having those difficult conversations and doing that inner work and doing more research and engaging in more uncomfortable conversations that I still do to this day to really inform that being a black woman in leadership is not just about where I stand in these spaces, but it's also having an intersectional understanding. And for those of you who are not familiar with the concept of intersectionality, it's one that really identifies the multiple oppressions that people experience, um, not just as like a black woman, but um, a black queer woman, a black trans woman, a black queer woman who's with trans and ha- is, has a disability. It's about recognizing that our oppression um, is multiple is multi-layered because it's linked to other parts of our identity um, that is often not accessible and not framed through this institution if that makes sense
1: let's talk about let's narrow it down to the spaces that you created mm-hmm. so a couple of events that you held the indigenous teachings facilitated by community members and and a racism talk series mm-hmm. So, can you describe some of the impact uh, these events have had on the Ryerson community?
3: Oh, 100%. Yeah. So, I was really thrilled in um, third year when I became the co chair of the Social Work Students Union. Um, that was actually So, we, we created a team. So, we did um, a lot of fundraising, a lot of advocacy, and we we retained um, a, a really great lump sum of funding to, to do that work. And so, it was my colleagues, um, some of the people on my team who facilitated the Indigenous specific event. And that was facilitated by Amy. Uh, Oh, I'm forgetting her last name, forgive me. But she is a... Um, community member, and I think she's also uh, faculty at Ryerson under the School of Social Work. Correct me, I might I might be mistaken. Um, I'm forgetting her last name right now, but she facilitated a te- um, Indigenous teaching session that was prioritized for Indigenous students. Um, and essentially, they came and they got to um, they got to unpack a little bit, you know, around land and and issues of land as it pertains to you know our role as social workers um, and so forth. I know they're looking back. I can't remember every single thing that was addressed, <laughs> but I know that there was a lot around. Indigenous teaching and what it means for us as practitioners, organizers, and people that just enter into and take up a lot of space in this colonial structure. Um, And that was extremely instrumental. You know, uh, my colleague... uh, Jack White and some other folks on the Social Work Students Union at the time were the lead organizers for that as I was a co-chair I really just came in to fill in the gaps and to support and make sure that as many indigenous students were a part of that space as possible But they were the ones to really lead out that work um, and it was super instrumental We got a lot of feedback um, around the fact that it was just really amazing for our events and for the spaces that we created to prioritize indigenous students and um, and not just you know, not not just like oh here's an indigenous teaching event here non-indigenous folks come take up space and learn from us, but actually say no indigenous students here's a space um, that you can create that you can come and and engage in these teachings, participate in these conversations, um, and really just like talk about what like what the what what decolonization practice looks like in the context of social work practice, but also in the context of social work practice at Ryerson. Um, and so we got a lot of really good feedback. People wanted more events. People a lot of indigenous folks and in, and just everyday students just started coming in um, to to inquire more about some of the teaching materials we were utilizing and to connect more with these facilitators and we and so forth the racism talk series that was also really really impactful event at every single event, I like there were either people crying and people talk, and not just like crying from the like trauma of re these experiences, but just about the possibilities that are created when we're able to really unpack the the depths of of systemic systemic racism and colonization, and um, and again terms that are all um, all very very complex, but in in simple form, systemic racism is like you know just understanding how systems inherently perpetuate um, anti blackness, anti indigeneity islamophobia and so forth and 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 other forms of racism Um, but also again with the intersectional lens I was talking about earlier Um, and then colonization just recognizing our history as a state but also even at Ryerson University um, the the history that we have at when it when it comes to colonization and recognizing that even you know Edgerton Ryerson that's a that's a that's a that, that's a statue but is also a symbol of that intergenerational trauma that Indigenous students have to endure every single time they step on this campus, um, and so it was it was we had some people who came to the event and they literally told us that they applied to the social work program just because of those series and then at the very end we had politicians locally um, who had to sit on a panel and provide clear information as to what their platform stands for and then also be subject to, you know the critique and the and the questions that were raised by young people and so when they were young people they raised some really incredible questions around like housing and affordable housing and tuition and and things of that nature and so that was uh, a movement that was successful and you know I got a call from global news a couple days after who wanted to interview me for um, to talk about it so that was really amazing and then following that we got a lot of other follow-up from young people from adulthood like when's the next one what are we doing it's not whatever and so we said you know what for community by community and now we've launched as a community organization we successfully retained funding in from taking it global to host our next event that's going to be happening on march 22nd from 12 to 4 <laughs> shameless plug <laughs> um so yeah that's one of the other ones for um you
1: definitely cool and so what obviously you're very passionate about informing youth informing your mm-hmm. peers but what keeps you motivated to continue
3: <sighs> doing this well <laughs> aside from all the sleepless nights and tears <laughs> um that, what keeps me motivated there are a lot of things Okay, so my why essentially. Um, My biggest why is, you know, recognizing obviously that. When when I think about voting in particular, um, I I always tell myself, you know, someone lost their lives so I could have a a chance at the polls to stand on the line and to sacrifice so that we can have access to these institutions in a meaningful way. And so when I think about the sacrifices that have been yielded from previous generations, I think, like, the least I can do is lay hold of the available resources that were fought for by my ancestors, Um, but also recognizing that we are still experiencing, you know— in terms of what I mentioned earlier about, you know, the consequences of leadership sometimes um, as a black woman um, in these spaces is, like, you know, the very real one of, like, misogynoir. Um And for those of you who are not familiar, it was a term that was birthed by Kim- Kimberly Crenshaw um, out of, out of out of constantly seeing that when we talk about racism or sexism we're either centralizing black men or white women and there was never an intersection that really focused on the unique contempt that black women endure um, at the hands of both parties but at the hands of major institutions so misagegynar is really um, focuses on, 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 on a particular kind of racism that is inflicted onto black women um, and that happens through our organizing and one of my mentors and great friends told me the other day um, when I was talking to her about some of um, some of the work that I'm currently doing she said sis don't do on the line and she just reminded me that we celebrate the sacrifices but we don't, we don't, we actually don't take into account how, like, black women are still on the line, black women are still at the forefront of these movements doing this work, Um, and bl- not just black, black women, black queer women, black trans women are still on the line doing this work, and it's always at our detriment, it's always at our expense. And when the conversation is over, if black women die on the line, all people care about is that the work got done, mm-hmm. not about the legacy left behind, not about who she was while she was doing that work, not about what she needed while she was doing that work. And so I think about, you know, I don't just want to change the outcomes of these political processes, I want to change the processes themselves. I want I don't want there to have to be a process whereby uh, where black women are always the sacrificial lamb in order for this work to be fulfilled. And so it, 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 while I'm doing this work, I'm constantly thinking, you know, how are we decolonizing the space of activism and the space of organizing that has been characterized by the labor and by the necessity to have black women at the forefront doing this work, leading this work, informing this work, sacrificing for this work. Um, and then the second part of my why is just future generations. I have so many young people who look up to me. I have so many young people. I, I have my family members, my parents who, are, you know, I'm a first generation student to pursue post-secondary education um, and that means a lot it means a lot in terms of, you know looking at my younger siblings and wanting them to know they can go through this organization and I don't want them to have to endure the same things I have to do endure so I want to fight to create better conditions for them that are more conducive for them to thrive much faster um, in a more meaningful way without the same trauma that I had to endure um, so yeah honoring the sacrifices of previous generations and recognizing that I want to create conditions that are conducive for future generations of black indigenous all kinds of youth to, to, to mean meaningfully participate in these political processes and its outcomes.
1: Absolutely. And like earlier, you were talking about like your unique experiences being a black woman mm-hmm. in leadership. Um, could you just extend, could you just talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. And like, what lessons have you learned along the way?
3: um d- One lesson that I w- learned is just, you know, so many lessons. Oh my goodness. I'll try to consolidate them and narrow them down. But um, not being afraid to take up space, like, really, really not being afraid to take up space. And I'm not just talking about like, you know, being the loudest in the room. I'm not just talking about, you know, taking every opportunity that's put on the table. I'm talking about, like, you know, when there are so many... Some of the experiences of just like being censored in meanings, you know what I mean? Um, being advised to tone it down or don't be too don't don't be too um passionate about this particular point on the agenda because it's just gonna show um this and that. Don't be don't don't be too bossy. Um don't be too, you know, be mindful, be cautious around this, this, that, but really having to censor myself and police myself in this space, but then turn it around and tell black, people, take up space, like do your thing. But no, like I wanna develop a standard to which I can take up space. Space unapologetically and you will honor the space that I'm taking up. I said for far too long black women have been told that we need to adapt ourselves to a society that has never toned it down for us and I'm not going to tone it down because somebody fought for me to be here not only am I going to be here unapologetically but I'm not going to sacrifice my mental health in order to access this space you need something from me and you will listen and so it's it's I've really just learned about the importance of taking up space in a meaningful way, being unapologetic about it demanding the same level of respect that we exude towards white men in these spaces and white women all of the time and, and recognizing I, I'm d- no more of this having to work 10 times harder to get the same level of respect because I, don't, I can leave the room there is somebody who will honor my opinion who will honor my perspective there is somebody in black spaces that I can go to and we can yield the same kind of outcome and do the same kind of work I will not rely on institutions that need me <laughs> I will not rely on institutions that are funded and built through the labor and the backs of my ancestors and say okay but I'm going to tone it down because you can't digest who I am and who I've had to become because of the oppression and the forces that have been built against my community so no just taking up space, recognizing what that means, being unapologetic and teaching people how to treat you. And would you say
1: that Ryerson exemplifies allyship when it comes (gasps) to student leadership within
3: the black community or indigenous community or racialized community? No, I would definitely say that, you know, there are there are individuals within Ryerson, um, faculty, students, um, folks who are just involved in the institution who who do that, like, within themselves, like, there are specific individuals who ally and who support um, Black student organizing, Indigenous student organizing, and so forth, um, and student organizing as a whole, but I think Ryerson in particular, it likes a particular kind of student organizing, Um, it likes particular kinds of student groups, it prioritizes, you know, uh, your digestible, um, very accessible, non-resistant kind of, like, engagements, and so... Um, But when it comes to like radical black organizing, radical indigenous organizing, um, I think we've seen examples of how Ryerson has pushed back on that and how Ryerson has been unresponsive to that and how Ryerson has at times policed and tried to undermine that. You know, again, the freedom of speech policy is just one example. But we remember years ago, you know, Tent City, we remember... um, you know, no TPS, no cops on campus. Like, when we look at somewhat to me, like a, a university recognizing the intrinsic value of, of, of black organizing on campus um, would not have gone out of its way to try and develop a relationship with Toronto service Police Services. Um, when we know that blacks, when we saw what happened at UFT, that when Toronto police or police were invited on campus, black indigenous students were being over-policed, They're mental, who had mental health issues. You know, why would you see that and know how black students feel about these these individuals and then invite them on this space <laughs> in addition to the fact that we already talk about issues of security on campus like why would you do that um, but more importantly when held to account for that you didn't give an answer you didn't like you know you didn't try to engage um, and so forth and so not only do we not see Ryerson taking the initiative to actively engage and to do meaningful work and to make decisions that reflect their solidarity with these students but we see them resisting and pushing back um, when students are actually like naming and saying no like we don't want this and so not not again with the allyship and that relationship building no Ryerson has not gone out of its way to do that um and that's just one example when folks raise concerns of anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity and what that looks like on campus um, not just saying okay well what do you want us to do but like actually doing the work as an institution who prides itself and rides the wave of um, equity and social justice and and is building like these different institutions on it but really at its core does not replicate that in and of itself I think that it's okay to acknowledge that nobody's perfect I think it's okay to acknowledge that we are all on this learning journey together that it's not easy Um, but I think Ryerson has more than on one occasion has had many opportunities to redress some of those trespasses to create better conditions to and and so forth and in each occasion we've either seen little to no action or action that has been let out by specific faculty members um and specific individuals within the institution who have supported black students who have supported black organizing and i honor those folks i appreciate those folks um and I can name a bunch of them right now, but don't have enough time for that. But yeah, so there are there's there's always good in the mix. I believe that there's I believe that we're not beyond repair. I believe that there's still room to, to change. I believe that if Ryerson can embrace the gift of radical organizing on campus and and engage in that um, and be willing to sacrifice and so forth, we can we can see a lot of really dope things happen for the next couple of years. Absolutely. Um,
1: do you have anything else that you would like to share with us, or? Say? Um. Well.
3: <laughs> Yeah, just thank you for this. Thank you for this this conversation and engaging in this stuff. Um again, I just wanna I, I just wanna say I think some of these conversations can leave people very hopeless and like can some uh, not these conversations this conversation in particular but just like the concept of social justice and activism and advocacy can people leave people like oh my gosh like we're going to be in this ride forever or whatever this and that but it's like no like I'll, in addition to the the struggle that we're experiencing you know they say wherever there's oppression there's always a resistance um I'm not just saying this to sound fluffy but like the sun has to come up we've seen it on so many different occasions we've seen it on in so many different movements um as much as there's been a lot there's been a lot of challenges that we have endured as a students as black students on this space there are resources that exist and we need to tap into the untapped potential of student organizing and the untapped potential of developing meaningful ally relationships and tap into um, you know really our consciousness and our awareness to to really build and reimagine what this campus can look like what organizing can look like what the future can look like for all students but when we recognize that when we support black organizing on campus when we uplift black students when we when we give them the resources they need to empower ourselves as students, our faculty, our institutions, then we can in turn build the kind of structure that is conducive for not just black students, but for everybody to rise, for everybody to build, for everybody to expand on. And it all starts with just making a decision within yourself and allowing that resolve to lead you to that awakening. So that's all.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Bye. (laughs) And if you guys want to learn more, follow Crystal's journey, follow her on IG at courtesy of Crystal. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Take care. (laughs) This poem is called Black Privilege. On evaluating Black Privilege. Black Privilege is the hung warrior. It's every Black man, woman, and child sacrificed in every war and promised freedom. Black Privilege is going to an airport and wondering if TSA is going to search my hair one more time. It's the tingle in my spine when I pass a police officer. It's the fear of having to one day memorize my brother's eulogy. Or my father's eulogy. Or my husband's eulogy. Or my unborn son's eulogy. It's not knowing whether or not to put my mother's name on that list. Black privilege is having to carry what little history I have on my back like a burden instead of a gift. It's me failing to track my lineage back past my grandmother. Black privilege is people laughing at my culture, then copying it the next day. Black privilege is me not knowing my own language. It's thanking God that my grandmother knew English because otherwise I would not have been able to tell her I loved her. And it's a shame of knowing that none of that would have mattered to her as much as me being able to tell her I loved her in her language. Black privilege was having to cut my hair at 13 to remove the relaxer. And it's knowing that most people don't even know what a relaxer is. Black privilege is remembering constantly that I have to work twice as hard to get half as far because of my skin and knowing that this equation is doubled because of my gender. Black privilege is knowing that the black woman is the backbone to most societies and also knowing that we are the least protected people in the world. Black privilege is understanding that I will be the first and last person to love myself, and it was thinking for a very long time that no one else would. It's my uncle telling me to get out of the sun because God forbid I get any darker. And it's my black friends telling me that if I was dark, I would be ugly. Black privilege is knowing that the anti me mentality hasn't changed since they colonized me. Black privilege is being given my country to rebuild with no resources, or finances, or support. It's sitting in my econ class knowing that none of this will be applicable to a country riddled with corruption and poverty. Black Privilege is misspelling the word privilege every single time it's used in this poem because my fingertips feel foreign to it. And Black Privilege is knowing that this poem will only matter so much because Black History Month is only so many hours of so many days of the shortest month in the year. And it's internalizing that we only matter so much because Black History Month is only so many hours of so many days of the shortest month in the year. And Black Privilege is understanding that we are Black every hour of every day of every month in the year. Before we were conceived, we were Black. And as our souls wash away from this earth, we were Black. And it's knowing that because of this, we are a target. And finally, Black Privilege is me pouring my heart out to you and you forgetting this poem in two minutes.
0: Here's what else we're following this week. Bryerson released a second update on February 3rd regarding the coronavirus, reminding community members that the risk of getting the virus still remains low. However, if you are sick, community members are encouraged to stay home.
1: The discounted double fare, or DDF, offers student writing on the GO and the TTC a $1.50 discount on their fare when transferring between GO and the TTC. However, the program is set to be cancelled. Students are expressing frustration over the situation. Although the amount seems small, even minor discounts can make a financial difference.
0: According to an email from the Ryerson Facilities Management and Development Office, public utility crews found the need for major emergency repairs on Gold Street. This leaves the reopening of Gould still up in the air. However, parts of the area will be opening, including the intersection at Victoria Street.
1: That's all for this week's Blue and Gold. Thanks for listening. You can catch up with us after Reading Week for more of your community's top stories, or check out ryersonian.ca for more in-depth coverage. Blue and
2: Gold is a production of the Ryersonian and the Ryerson School of Journalism. Our hosts are Dan Drigo and Latoya Powell with executive producing done by myself, Lauren Davis. Additional reporting done by Sharina Harris. Our editor-in-chief is Taline Loschiavo. Managing editor, Isabel Kirkwood. Instructors, Peter Baker-George and H.G. Watson. Graphics by Brent Smith. Special thanks to Angela Glover, Lindsay Hanna, Daniela Alayru, and Gary Gould. Music this week provided by WeStar. I'm Lauren Davis. Thanks for listening.